0: Well, 14 years ago, Summit Church opened its doors. We're 14 years old as a church, which means we get to stay up till 9.30. Uh, we we're looking forward to driving uh, in the next year. And 14 years ago, we, we, we began this adventure, this, this unknown thing, this, this, this hopeful endeavor of Summit Church. We began uh, in the Aloma Cinema Grill, uh, which, um, if you don't know, it's in, it's in Winter Park, and I think we have a picture of it. There it is, right there. Um, there's our sign, uh, Summit Church. Uh, that I think that was one of the early weeks, if not the first week. I remember there was one week uh, where uh, the the movie Vin Diesel's movie Triple X came out, and so you pulled up to church and it just said Triple X Summit Church. <laughs> But we, we we met in there as our first uh, church home uh, 14 years ago, and so much work uh, had gone in, into the preparation for opening our doors, for getting to the point where we said, were we able to say, come one, come all, and join us uh, in the mission of God lived out in this community. One of my uh, one of my most distinct memories is all the work that we did to figure out how to turn these really rather crusty rooms uh, into, uh, into a sanctuary and into a children's ministry space. So there's two theaters there. Uh, one's a larger one and we use that uh, for the sanctuary space. And then the other one uh, was our children's ministry space. This was actually our first entrance into our children's ministry space right here. Uh, you can see we spared no expense on foliage. <laughs> And uh, that's Bree, our first uh, children's ministry director, and that was the entrance uh, into the into the small theater. And then in the small theater, it uh, looked uh, it looked like this. We had uh, we, we it was very nice. We had bright colors. You'll see uh, those walls in the back of those panels uh, w- with really bright colors. We had to figure out how to turn this big open space into into nice uh, containing space uh, for for all these hordes of children that we were praying uh, would come and be a part of our community. And so. In the week uh, before we before uh, we officially opened, uh, we set to work making uh, those walls. And it, was, it, was, it was foam, uh, kind of laminated uh, with with thin plywood, and then painted bright colors. And it was like a day before uh, before uh, the opening Sunday. And uh, Ron Hauser, Michael Martin, myself, and a couple others uh, were were working on painting uh, these walls. And it was all kinds of bright colors. And we had just like 30 panels. And we had them lined up in someone's front yard. And we're painting them. And it starts to rain. And and so we're like, whoa, we can't let all the paint uh, run off. And so we'll just load them in the trailer and hope uh, that they dry. And they didn't. Uh, when we, got, when we, when we pull, opened up the trailer on Sunday morning and started getting uh, these panels out, we're prying apart these you know, gooey, sticky uh, panels together. And we put them up. And we're like, well, it's probably really important, uh, especially today, to not have the children like the walls. Uh, and, uh, and, and somehow, once it was all set up, the, the donuts were out, the orange juice was out. When it was all set up and we opened the doors, people came in. It's very controversial uh, uh, how many people actually showed up on that first Sunday. Uh, No one actually uh, thought to designate someone as the person who should count. And so the person who at the time seemed uh, most responsible among us uh, said very confidently that 330 people uh, had shown up for service. And we're like, this is amazing. And then the next week uh, we went and we counted the chairs and we're like, how is that possible? We only have like 150 chairs. How is it that 330 people showed up to church? But whatever, whatever it was, a 1,000 million people, however many it was, the people who came in didn't come because it was gonna be comfortable. They didn't come because it was something that, that would be convenient for them. It was, certainly wasn't something that would be safe uh, for their kids. They came because they believed that God was going to do something incredible in this community. I remember sitting down uh, with, with one couple. Um, they were our first old people uh, at Summit, uh, and uh, they took us to Angel's Diner, uh, which was like, I guess, contemporary dining uh, for them. And, uh, and uh, they took us and they sat us down and bought us lunch, and, uh, and they said, we figure that we've got about 20 years left where we can give ourselves fully to the work of God and we want to do that in this place. You've got whatever we have left. and They're still here today, it's an amazing, amazing thing. But they didn't do it because it was the best way to spend their retirement. In fact, he came out of retirement so that he could make more to be able to fund the church in the early days. They came here because there's something deeper than the vision that was compelling them. They believed and we believe that God wanted to use us to change the world. See, we didn't start with an amazing strategic plan. It certainly wasn't slick and certainly wasn't well presented. I was our first graphic artist. (laughs) But what we started with was a realization that God invites us into his work. He gives us the opportunity to participate. And not participate in in the way a dad lets his two-year-old help assemble a bookshelf with a plastic hammer. He gives us the type of participation that matters that is of critical importance in what he promises will be a victory for the church, for his kingdom. He assures the victory, but he invites us into the critical work of being a light in the world around us. That was at the heart of our calling before there was ever a vision. And so we sat down in our office, which uh, they also used as a borders in, in Winter Park Village. And uh, we sat down and we said, okay, God can use us to change the world. What, what, what does that look like? What, what, is, what does a church do? Before, before we ever invited people in, we're like, okay, well, you know, what does a church do? What, are, what is it about? And we began to look at what it was that Jesus was calling people to. We looked at, at the great commandment, the, the, the admonition to, to love God with our whole beings and to love others as ourselves. We looked at the Great Commission, his, his challenge to his community of followers, the, 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 the birth of the church to go and to make disciples. So as we looked at those things and looked at what that meant for us and what that means for really any healthy functioning church, it's from that that we, that we, that we came to our vision, which is our mission statement as a church. This is what we're about as a church. Whether you're here for the first time or you've been here for 14 years, Everything that you encounter in this community, everything that we work on together involves living out our vision in one of these aspects. Our vision is to build biblically functioning communities that reach lost people, connect in Christ-centered community, teach truth, serve others, and worship God. That's our vision as a church. Everything we do comes down to those things. When we talk about reaching lost people, it's about recognizing that there are still people in our world, in this world and in our world, in our everyday lives, who don't know how much they matter to God. They don't know what it means to be loved by their creator. They don't know that there's hope for their lives, there's hope for their eternity. They don't yet know that there's something more that their life could be than just merely what they can scrape out by their own will. In our city, very conservatively, there's three quarters of a million people who have never heard the gospel, who've never been told that Jesus loves them. And as a church, because we're a biblically functioning community, we choose to care. We can't ignore that reality. We put that at the front of our vision because we always want to be about remembering that those who are included are here because we can include others. We're here because we can invite others in. It's a big part of our call as a church. And then we live in Christ-centered relationships, recognizing that we weren't meant to do life alone. We weren't made to, to be an island. We weren't made to be alone and to figure everything out on ourselves. And we weren't made to be in meaningless community. We weren't made to be a loose association of people in proximity but doing their own thing. We were made to live on mission together with Christ as the center of our relationships. To be intentional in moving towards Jesus and intentional in moving towards each other and how we live our lives. And when we talk about teaching truth, it's a recognition that there is truth in this world. In a world where everything seems relative and negotiable in one way or another, we believe that there is a a bedrock of truth. We find our first source, our exclusive source for that truth in the Word of God. And we commit to be truth teachers in in, in, in how we talk and in how we live. And we recognize and remember that, that any honest pursuit of truth, of real truth, doesn't lead simply to knowledge, but it leads to the person of Jesus Christ. And then we commit to serve others, remembering that we were called to be the hands and feet of Christ, recognizing that Jesus doesn't just care about our eternities, he certainly does, but he cares about our here and now. He cares about the injustice in the world around us, the brokenness, the hopelessness that we encounter. He cares about people uh, who who spend all their time and all their energy trying to look like they're okay, and we can come alongside them and serve them in a way that, that reminds them that God loves them. We choose to stand with the orphan and the widow with the most vulnerable in our world because we recognize that that's what Jesus would do. And we're his representatives in the world around us, and so we roll up our sleeves and we serve. And then when we live lives like that, what it heads up to is that God is worshiped. We commit to live lives of worship, not just singing songs of worship, but recognizing that singing songs of worship invite us into lives of worship. And that when we fully engage in reaching people and connecting in Christ-centered relationships and teaching truth and serving others, when we do that and recognize the story is not about us, the story is about God, that adds up to worship. That's our vision as a church. That's what we're about as a community of people trying to follow Jesus. As I've looked back on 14 years of, uh, of being a part of this church, and it's been a wonderful but also, uh, you know, a hard 14 years. A lot of work, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of faith, a lot of energy poured into it. And, and as I've, I've looked back, I've tried to trace back what is it that brought me to this? What is it that has me still so fired up about the vision? What is it that brought me to a place where, where, where I get to say every day that I'm going to follow Jesus as a part of this community? As I look back on that, as I reflected on my life, I think there are three major thresholds that, that I crossed in this journey to being a part of, of living out the vision here. The first happened before I was 10 years old, I, was, uh, I grew up uh, in a family that loved Jesus. I, I went to church all the time, uh, and I believed what I heard. I believed that God uh, w- was my creator, that God loves me. I believed the world uh, was broken. It wasn't that difficult uh, to tell, even as a child. I believed that, that Jesus died for my sins. I believed that, that the full measure of his grace was available to me. But there was a point when I was a child I was laying in bed, I remember it clearly. I was thinking through all those things and all those pieces started to fit together. And I realized that I have a choice to make, that I have a part to play in this truth, in this reality of who God is, of what Jesus did for me. See, I can either say, yes, I accept that, or no, I don't. There's a line in my life, just like there's a line in every one of our lives. And we have the choice whether or not we step into the, into the true reality of, uh, uh, of what God is up to in this world and what God makes available to us in our lives. And I realize that I want to be on that side of the line. I want to be on the side of the line that says, yes, I recognize that I can't do it on my own. Even then, as a child, I knew that. I want to recognize and live in the reality that Jesus did everything necessary for me to live fully in him. I want to live a life that shows love for Him. And so I did that that night. I called my mom uh, in the room, and, uh, a- a- and I made that decision to give everything I knew of myself to Jesus, and to accept His sufficiency, His salvation, offered freely to me. There's a time just a few years after that where uh, I was, uh, I was walking on a property. We lived up in a kind of a rural area of Minnesota, and I loved being outdoors, so it was great. Uh, I also had four sisters who spent a lot of time indoors, so that also helped me love being outdoors. And there's this old—I think it was a driveway uh, at, that or had been a path, driveway, some at some point uh, on our property, and it was mostly wooded around me. But there's this path that that cut through, and I was walking down this path, and I was uh, I was realizing that. What, what salvation meant, what it meant for me to be a follower of Jesus didn't just say something about my eternity. It didn't just mark the end of something that God wanted to do in my life. It marked a beginning of life. It marked a pathway, an invitation into what God was doing in the world. And I recognized that, that me saying yes to Jesus wasn't just saying, yes, I'll be with you when I die, but yes, I'll live my life fully for you in every way. And so on that path, walking On that sunny afternoon, I I, I gave uh, not just my my hope for eternity to Jesus, but I gave my life to him. I said, I'll live for your purposes. Whatever you ask me to do, wherever you ask me to go, I'm in. I'm all in for your work in this world. I want to do the things that you care about. I want to participate in in, in your mission in this world because I recognize that I want others to have the same access to hope that I've had. So I committed myself fully to his purposes. The final threshold in that journey for me was was the most surprising of all. We'd moved uh, to Florida. I was uh, was a teenager at this point, finishing up high school. And and, and we ended up in just an incredible church. And it it was the the community of of students at that church that God just used to radically change my life to give shape to to what it meant to live for Jesus, what it meant uh, to follow him in the context of community. And I realized that in order to fully live out God's mission in the world, in order to fully engage his purposes, I had to fully engage his people. And that was a surprise to me because I'm I'm the person uh, who likes to go it alone. Some of my fondest memories as a child are of the times I took off alone and went and explored new places. The books I love to read are about the people, the intrepid explorer who goes uh, out on his own, no support, no help, and finds new things. I'm the guy who really, really wants to buy an island, and it doesn't matter how big it is. I just want an island, and I want to sit on this island. And so, for me, being very comfortable not being around people, the realization that that the mission of God draws us into the people of God was a surprise to me. And for me, in particular, in that, in that context, that mission, that community that God was building, that building, that call to ministry centered around my two uh, very, very best friends. And I have a picture of us here. Uh, that's Isaac Hunter on the right, Andy Simons, our worship pastor, uh, on the left. And I don't know who that is in the middle, but he needs a haircut for sure. Uh, this, was, uh, this was the summer after uh, we, we, uh, we felt confirmed in our call to start a church together one day. We used to spend time, you can take the picture down, please. We used to spend time uh, sitting in Denny's in the middle of the night and talking about what would it look like if we lived our lives fully engaged in God's work in this world. And from that came this idea of one day God will call us to start a church together. That next summer, we had the opportunity to, to serve in interim leadership. And we were 19 uh, at the time. I mean, it was, I don't know what they were thinking. It must have been a very desperate church but they invited us in to to come in and lead and God did amazing things in that. But I realized that God's call on my life to live in his mission meant that I lived in community with his people, that I don't go it alone. And from that came what eventually would be called Summit Church. And I've been asked over the years, did I ever imagine Summit would look like this? And the truth is, I never doubted whether or not the church would grow. I mean, I know that we could, uh, we could screw things up. I knew that we could, uh, that, that, that we could mess up our own involvement. I knew, I knew that we had a significant part to play in it. But I, but I never doubted whether or not the church would grow. Because Jesus said he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. I know that God wins in the end. So I have great confidence that God would build his church. I imagined what it looked like. I imagined uh, people coming in and finding hope and acceptance and transformation and, and us going out and serving the world in meaningful ways. I imagined all those things. But what I never really imagined was the personal, individual nature of what God would do in this place. I never imagined the hundreds of people who would have their lives radically transformed because of what God has done in this community. I Think of Mark, one of the first people who I got uh, to see come to faith at Summit. He'd actually uh, been, uh, been approached uh, by someone who goes to Summit who, uh, who saw him in what was an escalating uh, domestic uh, dispute in the Target parking lot, and that person came and kind of talked, uh, talked them off the edge and said, if you ever need to talk, give me a call. And that number sat on Mark's side table for three months. And one day he picked up the phone and called, and that call led to a conversation, and that conversation led to Mark coming into this community. And that led to his life being transformed. He gave his life to Jesus, and he gave himself to God's work in the world because he wanted other people to have access to that. I never imagined that story happening. I never imagined what it would look like for a couple of hundred people in, in, the, in the comfort of this community to say, we're going to go and we're going to do all that work that it took in the beginning again so that we can bring the, the vision of Summit closer to the people who we want to be included. And I started campuses like Waterford and Lake Mary. I never imagined the specific nature of that, of that person walking into regroup and saying, I'm not going to do it alone. I've been failing on my own and, and I need help. And seeing the transformation that comes from that, or, or that family that, that, that finds that God has called them to go and live and serve amongst the poorest of the poor in the and they've given their lives to that. I never imagined the specific individual nature. I could imagine the generalities, but the specifics of it have been more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. Over the summer, when we were going through Ephesians, if you were with us during that, you know we talked a lot about the, 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 the two halves of Ephesians. The first half is, here's, here's all that God has done, here's all our identity in him, here's, here's all the important stuff. And because of this, in the second half, now what? it a therefore. Therefore, now what? And early on in Paul's description of, uh, uh, of what now, of what, of what happens because of all these other things, he describes the church in Ephesians 4.13 as attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. When I read this, that this summer, I was just so struck by it. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And I thought, how often do we settle for less than that as a church? How often do I settle for less than that? How often do I somehow think that, that what the church is now is just an echo of, of the church that was? Or maybe a foreshadowing of what will be one day. We look in a world around us that's broken and desperate for hope, and, and we settle for being a placeholder instead. That's not what the church is. The church is the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In that same season where God was calling us to start a church together one day, Andy and I in particular were captured by another nearer term vision. We were going to spend that summer building a go-kart that was powered by a motorcycle engine, a 900cc motorcycle engine. Now, if you don't know what that means, it means it's a go-kart with all the limited handling and poor braking of a go-kart, but with 10 times the power. <laughs> we we're going to get a motorcycle engine from a wrecked motorcycle, which I guess seems like a bad omen, uh, and we we're going to put this thing on a go-kart frame, and we we're going to paint it black, and it was going to be the, embodiment, the physical embodiment of our awesomeness. And so we set out to accomplish this over the summer. We were so sold out for this vision. We talked about it, we made drawings, I think we went to a junkyard once. Uh, and it wasn't too long after that that Andy came to my door one day. We lived on the same street, we lived on, uh, on a circle and he was just a few houses down. And he came to my door one day and he's like, I'm so bored, we just gotta do something now. And so we're like, all right, well we don't have an engine, but Andy's, tru- Andy's dad's truck has an engine and it also has a tow hitch. And so what we'll do is we'll build something to be powered by the truck. And so we went to the hardware store we bought lawnmower wheels and two-by-fours and nails. And we came back and we found an old bicycle. And we built uh, what was a triangle. So just imagine a big like five-foot-tall triangle but laying down. And the narrow end at the back uh, had the bicycle tire. And the front uh, was kind of these two motorcycle wheels on a pivot. And we would sit on the narrow part of the triangle, put our feet um, on the wide part of the triangle, and then we would steer this uh, with a rope. And we'd propel it by tying it to the back of Andy's dad's truck. So I was, the, I was the first to go. And since we were clearly capable of making very responsible decisions, we decided to wear motorcycle helmets. Uh, so well, I don't think Andy did when he was driving. But I wore one, and I'm on the back. And we get going, I think the first lap in his neighborhood we did really slow trying to trying to figure things out, but Andy was more and more confident in his ability to drag me behind his truck. And so we were picking up speed and we were approaching what was the sharpest turn in the neighborhood. And I'm, I'm going behind him and I realized there is no way we're gonna make this turn without Andy just whipping me around and I was like, this is gonna kill me. And so in a moment of panic, I pull the cart next to the curb and I make this, with all the agility I can muster, leap for the grass next to the road. And amazingly, I landed right on the grass, missed the sidewalk and everything. And then I realized that my foot had gotten caught up in the steering rope. And so in that next moment, I get whipped out into the road as Andy makes this turn, clearly paying attention to what was ahead of him because it took him way too long to stop. I'm tumbling down the road behind him, with, all jumbled up with this cart. So then it was my turn to pull Andy. (laughs) And we made several laps and we got faster and faster and more and more confident. And we're going around one of these other turns and there's just a little bit of slack in the rope and just enough for the rope that was towing Andy to catch the front tire and promptly, at about 25 miles an hour, turn him in the opposite direction that we're headed. Andy goes flying off, still in the seating position, uh, off the cart and skips down the road like a rock (laughs) on a still pond. We started the summer with a beautiful vision and we'd, and we'd ended the day with some sort of macabre Home Depot death sled. And I think about how often do we do that in life? How often do we settle for lesser visions? How often do we compromise the beauty of what could be for the easiness of what is? How often do we, in our family, imagine this is what our marriage could look like? This is what this is the parents that we could be, and then we end up settling for just getting through another day. Or we look at our, at our new job or our new school and we say we're going to go in there and we're going to be the light of Christ in the world around us, and yet we find ourselves going through our workday, just hoping not to get noticed. Or you look in your own life and you're like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fully transformed into the image of Christ. I'm going to pursue personal holiness with a vigor. I'm going to live my life on mission for God. And then you find yourself just trying not to get worse. Or maybe it's in your church. I mean, maybe it, you, 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 you step into the church community saying, I'm going to be fully engaged with God's work in this world and we are going to change the world. And yet, over time, you find yourself more of a spectator, watching and reviewing like you would a movie and missing out on the opportunity to live out the mission. It's not God's vision that has gotten smaller. It's that we've settled for smaller visions. God's vision doesn't get smaller. It, like Narnia, is always bigger on the inside. It's certainly harder than we ever thought it would be, but a God-given vision is more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. And when we settle for lesser visions, we starve our souls. We become dull to our needs and dull to the needs of the world around us. We settle for the echo of what was or the shadow of what could could be. But we forget the beauty and the fullness of what is possible in the here and now. And when we settle for lesser visions, it's not just us who suffer. We live in a world that's broken. And you don't have to look hard to realize that. We live in a world where people uh, li- live every day in, in brokenness and pain. I mean, you look at any headline of what's going on in the world around us and when you look deep and peel back the layers, you find broken relationships. We have more access to, to, to communication to, to be seen and heard than we ever have. And yet we're, we feel less heard less seen, less known, and less loved. But it doesn't need to be that way in the church. In fact, it ought not be that way in the church. In the community of faith, people should be able to look and see the beauty of what it means to be known, accepted, and loved. To be be loved for exactly where we are and cheered on to what God is making us to be. It's interesting to me that Jesus, when he, was, when he was praying before he went to the cross, when he was praying for us, for the future followers of him, he prayed that there would be unity. And just before that prayer, when talking to his disciples, the, the seed of the future church, he said, I want you to know that the world is gonna know that you're my followers in the way that you love each other. People outside looking in will know better who I am. They'll know you're mine. By how you love each other. When people look into the church, they should see something so attractive, something that they can't see anywhere else in the world. It's the Christ-centered relationships that, that 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 make the possibility of eternity believable for people who don't dare yet to believe it. Our call to action as a community, our call to action as we live out the vision is a call to community to be on mission together in Christ-centered relationships, to take bold steps into community and to take bold steps into opening our communities for others. I believe that there is something that God wants to show the world that can only be seen in the context of Christ-centered community. When Jesus said, I'll build my church, when Jesus left his mission, all that he had done, uh, and, and, and when he left that, he didn't leave it with a strategic plan, he didn't leave it Uh, uh, to to a governmental agency. He didn't leave it to a social movement. He didn't leave it to a fund. He left it to people, to a community of people with Jesus at their center. He said, I will use you to be my hands and feet, to be the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There's something that God wants to show the world that can only be seen in the context of Christ-centered community. A few weeks back, I did a, a short survey with a number of folks uh, from some, and I asked them two questions. The first question was, what, what motivates you to take steps into intentional community? And it was really interesting. Everyone had a very clear picture of the benefits of being in Christ-centered community. Everyone had a, a, a clear understanding of what that would mean for them, of, what, uh, of the value of being known and loved and vulnerable of what it could mean for people around them, of how they could be uh, that for other people, a champion uh, for for God's transforming work in their life. Everyone had a very clear understanding of of the beauty of what could be an intentional community. And the second question is, what, what are the biggest barriers to taking steps into intentional community? And almost without exception, there were two answers, busyness and fear. Everyone knew how, 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 how much they needed intentional Christ-centered community. And yet everyone struggled with busyness and fear, significant barriers to them stepping into that. And it takes a lot of energy to overcome that. I mean, living fully into... the the beauty and potential of a God-given vision takes work. It takes takes saying that we're not going to put community on top of our business. We're going to move our business out of the way so we can fully engage in Christ-centered community. That we're going to take the risk, do the hard work of stepping in and making ourselves vulnerable so that we can be a light for those around us. To overcoming the fear. But I would venture to say that no one who calls some at home and no one has said this is my church has said so because they want to be spectators. Because we merely want to sit and watch. We want to get in the game. I mean, you look at any of us bizarro parents at our kids athletic events and you know we weren't made to sit on the sidelines. We yearn, we urge ourselves into the game. We were made to be in the game. We signed up because we dared to believe that God could use us and we should not settle for sitting on the sidelines. And so we take bold steps into community, into living out the vision in the context of Christ-centered community. And I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. It might mean that you, that you join a Summit Connect group. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about uh, a lot of ways that we can connect o- o- over, over the fall. It might just be as simple as that. It might mean that, that you lead a Connect group so you can invite others in, that you open up your home to include others. It might mean that you start volunteering so that you can get to know the people you go to church with. It might mean that you open up your community so that others can be included or that you take your community to the world so that you can display the love of Christ to the world around you. I don't know exactly how that plays out for you, but I'll tell you where it plays out is in your relationships. If you want to fully engage in God's mission in the world, you have to engage his people. There's something that God wants to show the world that can only be seen in the context of Christ-centered community. And it's a scary thing and it's a difficult thing and it's a big commitment, but nothing worth doing is easy. And so your challenge and my challenge is to put aside the busyness, to step through our fear and to fully engage in Christ-centered community and see what God does in our lives and see the potential of what God can do through our lives for the sake of others. It looks a lot of different ways, but I wanna end our time together looking at one example of what happens when people take that bold step into Christ-centered community. Watch this.